Remember, folks, it's okay to hate chocolate. It's not okay to hate Toblerone. A big shout out there uh, to my in-laws who got me a Toblerone for my birthday. So I'm recording this actually on the 28th of September and it is uh, my birthday. I won't tell you how old I am. It's, it's old. Um, but I thought what better than to spend my birthday than with all you lovely people out there, especially those who subscribe to the show and a link on how to do that is in the show notes. You get access to the full back catalogue and you also get two bonus podcasts in addition to free ones like this one every single month. So go and subscribe. What are we going to talk about today? We are going to be talking about prime ministerial power in the age of Liz Truss. So I've recorded a couple of podcasts before on prime ministerial power. Uh, The first one was way back when Boris Johnson became prime minister and this A-level politics show was relatively new. And my conclusion then was that Boris Johnson would be a relatively weak prime minister. I then uh, did another podcast on this issue about halfway through his tenure. And it was during the COVID crisis, I think, when I said, actually, he's quite a powerful prime minister. He'd won uh, an election since the the first recording um, and he was relatively popular as well. I'm now recording right at the start of the Truss Premiership. Liz Truss is Prime Minister um, and I'm actually returning to my direction which is actually Prime Minister's struggle to dominate the political system and I should tell you the question, the official question today is this, evaluate the view that the Prime Minister can dominate the political system and as uh, as I've said I think that uh, Truss will be unable to do so despite inheriting that 80 seat or so Conservative majority for a whole host of reasons. And it leads me to think that any kind of dominance a prime minister has over the political system is fleeting at best. So, in any essay on the prime minister, especially if it's not a source based question, remember that you have to use synoptic links to get into the top levels, to get into level five. Um, Some examples of synoptic links to use in a prime minister question might be uh, referring to first past the first past the post. Remember synoptic links uh, for a paper two question requires you to refer to a paper one topic. So first past the post uh, is a a paper one topic um, and it's an electoral, it's part of the electoral systems um, topic. And um, you can you can point to the fact that first past the post often helps prime ministers get a large majority. You might point to party divides, um, the new right cabinet members or one nation cabinet members, so-called dries and wets under Thatcher could be referenced because if you refer to party factions, that is a synoptic link back to the political party's topic uh, of paper one. Or you can refer to new Labour or or old Labour um, uh, under Blair um, and so on. So um, there's some synoptic links to help you get going. Also, before we we start in earnest, um, any essay on the executive should include a range of examples. Although it's not a history essay and you should prioritise recent examples, that's what this podcast is there to help you uh, with. Uh, You do need uh, to give a range of examples about prime ministers before 1997 and after 1997 as well. So don't worry, I've got you covered there as well. So again, let's return to the question. Evaluate the view that prime ministers can dominate the 
political system. So I'm going to define, I'm going to use the DDD method of introductions. I'm going to define um, something in the question and then I'm going to outline what I'm going to discuss uh, and then I'm going to give you my direction. I already have given you that, but we'll repeat it. So DDD, I'm going to define, well, what should we define here? Evaluate the view that prime ministers dominate the political system. Well, play around with words, peeps. Shape the definition in a way that will allow you to come back to the words you will use. So I'm going to play around with this word dominant. Okay, so to be dominant, in my view, or to define dominance, prime ministers must be able to control the political system through their use of patronage, their ability to make decisions separate of parliament and utilise the tools at their disposal, including their majority, their party uh, and their own personal appeal to the public. So in order to discuss this question, that's another sentence starter I get my students to use, uh, the following will be analysed. Patronage, use of royal prerogative, size of majority, probably the most important one actually, uh, party unity and the personality of the Prime Minister. Now in an essay you're probably only going to be able to cover three of these and I think the size of majority is all important really um, and patronage is probably the second most important. Um, but I'm going to cover all five of them. Patronage, use of role prerogative, majority, party and personality. So I'm just going to refer you back to my direction again. In recent times, Prime Ministers have not been able to dominate the political system. The fact that at any at the fact that at the time of recording, Britain has had four Prime Ministers in six years is demonstrative of an office whose power is at best fleeting. Any Prime Minister is beholden to a number of factors that affect their ability to dominate. So after the break, we'll focus on the, the powers, the sources of their power and the constraints of their power. Let's focus on patronage. The power of patronage allows the Prime Minister to dominate. Let's focus on that argument. In my view, the weaker argument is that it allows them to dominate. So what is patronage? It's the power to make appointments to the cabinet, to junior ministerial roles, and partly to the House of Lords. The main component of this power is the ability though, to appoint the cabinet and junior ministers, the so-called payroll vote. Those people who you bring into government who will then vote with the government in parliament, allowing the government to dominate the legislative agenda. Members of the cabinet therefore owe their promotion to the Prime Minister and are bound by collective ministerial responsibility. You can see an earlier podcast that I recorded on that. And this is the convention that government ministers should all vote for and agree with policy in public. And if they don't, then they should resign. Now, this collective ministerial responsibility that ministers are bound by allows prime ministers to shape the ideological direction of the cabinet, to reward supporters and to punish those they do not like. So Thatcher appointed the Dries, the so-called uh, Dries. They were new right Tories who agreed with her policies. So she used the power of patronage to get a cabinet that was ideologically coherent. Until recently, the Prime Minister also appointed peers, members of the House of Lords. Yet they are still that they still retain, uh, you know, they, they still retain a lot of influence over who gets nominated for a peerage, even if that power is now officially taken up by the Independent Appointment, Appointments Commission. David Cameron appointed over 200 peers to the House of Lords in an attempt to boost his party's control of that chamber. 
Boris Johnson promoted those to his cabinet who were loyal to his leadership campaign at the time. Rishi Sunak, seems amazing now, was uh, one of the early supporters of Boris Johnson, even though they fell out later on. Um, and Boris Johnson also sacked those who showed disloyalty over Brexit, including Northern Irish Secretary Julian Smith. Likewise, in 2022, Liz Truss appointed her friend and ideological soulmate Kwasi Kwarteng to Chancellor and removed many of the ministers who backed Rishi Sunak's leadership campaign from senior positions. However, there are serious limits to patronage, especially recently. The Prime Minister often has no choice but to appoint senior party members into the Cabinet, even if the Prime Minister disagrees with them on policy. Thatcher initially was forced to appoint the so-called wets. These were moderates who disagreed with her new right agenda. These people may be more dangerous as backbenchers where they are not bound by collective responsibility. So it's better to have them in the tent rather than outside of the tent. Cameron and May both felt it was better to have Boris Johnson in their cabinets, even though it was very clear that Johnson was angling for a leadership bid. Rivals in cabinet are equally irksome, annoying in government. Gordon Brown undermined Blair's leadership by having sympathetic politicians brief against number 10. That means telling the media that they're not happy with Blair on one policy or another, but not doing it in public. The type of government also affects the leeway with patronage. In coalition, David Cameron had to appoint several Liberal Democrats to the cabinet as part of the coalition government. Claire Short served in the Blair government for six years, despite being old Labour. Um, so you can see that even that example I've just given there is 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 an example of a Labour government that had a large majority, but still uh, you, you have to think about uh, the ideological uh, balance in your cabinet. Now, with a small majority and then a hung parliament, Theresa May had to promote prominent Brexiteers, including Johnson, Fox and Davis, to senior positions, but also maintain a balance by keeping remainers like Philip Hammond at the Treasury. So May's attempts to reshuffle unfavourable ministers seriously backfired in 2018. Jeremy Hunt refused to move from his post as health secretary and Justin Greening decided to quit rather than accept the offer to move from education secretary to work in pension secretary. These examples are perhaps symbolic of the limits of patronage in a minority government where ministers feel emboldened to push for what they want. The breakdown over collective responsibility, CMR, over Brexit made it difficult to sack ministers. The three Remain MPs thre threatened to quit. Three Remain MPs threatened, sorry, I'll start again. Three Remain ministers, cabinet ministers, threatened to quit if Theresa May refused to accept a no deal vote in parliament. And that demonstrates this point. So in March 2019, members of the cabinet, including Amber Rudd, defied the whips and abstained against the government's opposition to ruling out a deal under any circumstances. Even in a majority government, prime ministers cannot be assured of a smooth reshuffle. Boris Johnson had to accept the resignation of Sajid Javid in 2020 when Javid refused to allow his advisers to be chosen by Dominic Cummings, Johnson's own chief advisor. The prime minister is also expected to take account of diversity. So Theresa May appointed women to senior positions. Liz Truss uh, has a very diverse uh, cabinet. Prime minister's though, are powerless 
to stop resignations as the Javid example demonstrates. And that can damage their authority. So the resignation of the once loyal Rishi Sunak from Johnson's government, along with Sajid Javid for a second time after being invited back uh, to be Home Secretary, not Home Secretary, uh, Health Secretary, proved the death knell for the Johnson government. A spate of resignations followed thereafter, which forced Johnson to announce his resignation in July 2022. So you can use your patronage to to try and get a loyal cabinet, as Johnson did. But that loyal cabinet ultimately turned against them when they thought that he was an electoral liability. So the cabinet really, and the actions of the cabinet, resulted in Johnson quitting, just as uh, Thatcher's cabinet turned against her. So patronage has its limits. You cannot guarantee loyalty. You can, you can hope for loyalty, but you can't, can't guarantee it. I want to turn now to the royal prerogative. The royal prerogative are powers that were once those of the monarch, and they have now passed to the prime minister. In theory, the king, I should say now, dissolves or ends parliament for an election. But that dissolution is often made at the calling of the prime minister. The prime minister requests that the king dissolves parliament and the king is duty bound to accept. Now, while the Fixed-Term Parliament Act supposedly prevented the Prime Minister from calling an election without first asking Parliament, there have been two occasions when Parliament has simply agreed to one. Theresa May announced the snap election in 2017 and Boris Johnson successfully, successfully pushed for a winter election in December 9, 2019 after initially being thwarted by Parliament. Anyway, the Dissolution of Parliament Act 2022 restored the power of the Prime Minister to decide the date of an election and also removes the UK Supreme Court from interfering with the Prime Minister's royal prerogative power to prorogue, that means to suspend Parliament, something Johnson attempted to do in 2019 to avoid scrutiny over his Brexit plans and which the court prevented at the time. So the power, just going back to the power to call an election, this allows the Prime Minister to threaten wayward MPs with an election which could cost them their seat. And that has the effect of getting those wayward MPs to come back into the fold and vote with the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is also the de facto commander in chief under the royal prerogative of the armed forces. So in theory, they can declare war. Now, granted, Tony Blair allowed the House of Commons a vote on the Iraq war, setting arguably a precedent for all future conflicts. Yet the Prime Minister retains extensive commander-in-chief powers over the armed forces and can move armed forces around the globe with little consultation. Witness how uh, Johnson has, say, provided military equipment uh, to Ukraine. David Cameron sent the British Air Force to impose a no-fly zone over Libya before he held a vote in Parliament. Theresa May also authorised the bombing of Syria in 2018, which appeared to weaken the precedent that Blair had set on Iraq. The Prime Minister can also sign treaties under the royal prerogative and enter into negotiations with other countries, as David Cameron did with the EU on migrants' benefits. The vote on Article 50, which uh, served notice to the EU of Britain's intention to leave the EU, uh, gave the Prime Minister the authority to start negotiations with the EU on the UK's withdrawal from the EU. Liz Truss has signalled her intention to rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol, an arrangement that keeps the province in the EU single market if goods between uh, um, 
Britain and Northern Ireland continue to be subject to extra checks. So this example shows that prime ministers can use their diplomatic powers implied in the royal prerogative to steer international relations. So a one prime minister might have a different relationship with, say, European partners uh, from another. One might uh, try and pivot towards Asia. One might try and um, develop that special relationship with the United States. The role prerogative gives uh, the prime minister the de facto role as chief diplomat. And, and that means that they can shape foreign policy in some ways more than they can domestic policy. However, the royal prerogative has been weakened in recent years. Blair indeed has set a precedent, a new way of doing things by giving the Commons a vote on the Iraq war. Would any future prime minister dare to take the UK to war without a vote in Parliament first? Now, Theresa May's Syria action in 2018 stopped short of committing ground troops. And so arguably, the President Blair set of Iraq remains in place. Cameron allowed two votes on military action in Syria in 2013 and 2015. He lost uh, the first vote, which uh, shows that Parliament has real clout when it comes to deciding international relations. Now, while the fixed term Parliament Act was scrapped, allowing the prime ministers to call an election when they want to, prime ministers are highly unlikely to call an election when they are unpopular. Their likability with the public often falls in the early years of their tenure when they are trying to introduce difficult and sometimes unpopular measures. I don't think Liz Truss is going to call an election in October 2022. The Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that Theresa May had to ask Parliament for permission to commence negotiations on Britain's EU withdrawal, asserting that Parliament was sovereign. Now, this ruling confirmed that parliamentary sovereignty took priority over the Prime Minister's royal prerogative powers. The Prime Minister's ability to prorogue or suspend Parliament again was called into question by the Supreme Court in September 2019, as I have discussed earlier. Now, while the government has since taken steps to restore the power of the Prime Minister to prorogue Parliament without interference by the Supreme Court. Future Prime Ministers may well be wary of the optics when it comes to lengthy suspensions of Parliament. I want to turn to, I think, the most important power, which is the Commons majority. And this allows a prime minister to dominate parliament. The prime minister is the leader of the largest party in the House of Commons, and that party usually has a majority of seats. They therefore have a much greater chance of having legislation passed. So Tony Blair did not suffer a single Commons defeat between 1997 and 2005. David Cameron suffered hardly any Commons defeats. Um, and in 2014 to 2015, the government got 100% of its legislation through parliament, despite the existence of a coalition government. Now, even therefore, when one party doesn't have a majority, they can team up in a coalition with another party to dominate parliament. And that's what happened between 2010 and 2015 between the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats. Theresa May signed what's called a confidence and supply agreement with the DUP so that even with a minority government where a government does not enjoy a majority of seats and doesn't work in partnership with another party in an official capacity, her party could still win key votes in parliament with that agreement with the DUP. Witness how she comfortably survived a vote of confidence in January 2019. Now, Boris Johnson's 80-seat parliamentary majority allowed him to steer through Brexit 
at the end of January 2020. And since the 2019 general election, the governments of Johnson and Trust have not lost a single vote in the House of Commons. So what I'm saying here is a majority really helps the Prime Minister to steer through the legislative agenda. And even if they don't have one or have to work with other parties, often they're able to command a majority for legislation on a case by case basis in the House of Commons. However, majorities are not fixed. So Blair's Commons majority was halved in 2005. As a result, he lost his first Commons vote on detaining terror suspects for 90 days in 2006. Brown faced backbench rebellions on scrapping the 10p rate of tax and on holding terror suspects for up to 42 days as well. So his majority, uh, inherited from Tony Blair, uh, was weaker than what the Labour Party had in 97 and 2001, where they had massive majorities and they could ignore backbench rebellions. Cameron faced difficult votes every week as his party had no overall majority in the House of Commons between 2010 and 2015. So yes, if the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives teamed up, they could dominate the Commons. But there were backbench rebellions in both parties, which uh, meant that they often have to, had to uh, weaken the legislation that they wanted to introduce. With a small Commons majority after 2015, the Tories lost a vote on loosening Sunday trading laws in March 2016. When the majority is small or non-existent, a Prime Minister is likely to be more restrained in what they bring to Parliament for fear of losing. And maybe that's why the statistics on how many votes are lost uh, are a little misleading. They don't lose votes because they don't bring stuff to Parliament because they think they're going to lose them. Even a majority government cannot get everything its own way. After a Tory rebellion over involving Chinese firm Huawei in the rollout of 5G in 2020, the government ditched plans to do so. Johnson faced a 100 plus Tory rebellion over some or all of his Plan B COVID measures announced to combat the Omicron variant in December 2021. The strength of the rebellion hastened, hastened the government's push to so-called live with COVID. This example shows that while majority governments are unlikely to lose votes, they are still forced to adapt policy to take on board the views of backbenchers. At the time of recording, Trust faces a potential backbench rebellion over her Chancellor's announcement in September 2022 that the top rate of tax will be removed for high earners. So Commons majorities, useful, but they're not a guarantor of success. One of the reasons why majorities are not a guarantor of success is due to the party unity or party disunity of the governing party, of the prime minister's party. The prime minister can usually count on the loyalty of their party, I say usually. Despite Brown's unpopularity, not a single Labour Party MP made an official attempt to hold a leadership contest. The party tends to unite as well around an election time or when people think an election is near. So David Cameron managed to hold his party together despite misgivings that they had about working with the Liberal Democrats. And despite the Remain or Leave divide in the Tory party prior to the Brexit referendum, only one Tory MP, Ken Clark, voted against triggering Article 50. Boris Johnson removed the whip of several Remain supporting MPs and at the subsequent general election, those MPs were replaced by pro-Brexit ones. So Tory MPs, know now the consequences of speaking out against the government. And the net effect of the example I just gave was one where 
Boris Johnson could count on a more Brexity backbench group to get his Brexit deal over the line in January 2019 when he won that whopping great majority. So his threat to deselect MPs, to not allow them to stand as Conservative MPs at the, uh, at the, the next election, and that usually happens when you remove the whip of an MP, therefore they, 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 they lose their privileges as a, as a Conservative uh, in the House of Commons. That, that means MPs are more likely to stay loyal to a Prime Minister, especially on key votes. However, the governing party is seldom united, hindering the ability to dominate. And if you bash your MPs over with a stick, uh, if you bash your MPs over the head with a stick, sorry, uh, if you keep threatening them, then actually the, the net effect could be very negative. The Tories effectively removed Thatcher when she faced a leadership contest that, after the first round of counting, indicated a lack of support amongst Tory backbenchers. They were fed up with her leadership style, her domineering personality, and turned against her. John Major faced a leadership contest from John Redwood and Eurosceptic uh, Eurosceptics uh, in the Tory party. Um, and those Eurosceptics almost defeated the Maastricht Treaty that he had negotiated with Brussels. Blair became unpopular within his party, especially after Iraq. Brown may have had few MPs willing to openly challenging him, challenge him for the leadership, but very few actually were willing to energetically defend him on the radio, on TV. The only reason Brown remained Prime Minister until 2010 was because many of the so-called plotters, those who wanted to remove him, were just totally useless at coordinating a revolt against his leadership. Cameron's call for a referendum on Britain's EU membership stemmed in large part to the Eurosceptic right wing of the Tory party that didn't go away, even though John Major defeated John Redwood in the mid-1990s in that leadership contest. Um, and in fact, uh, Cameron... Uh, really felt he had to throw a bone to the Eurosceptics once uh, Cameron had thrown his support behind gay marriage. Uh, and so some people say gay marriage uh, led to the Brexit referendum because Cameron was so keen to offer something to his right wing. His right wing voted against gay marriage. Tory rebels, including new MPs after the 2015 general election, forced the government to climb down over plans to cut tax credits for working families. Theresa May accepted that she would step down as Prime Minister after the Brexit process was completed and before the next election, which was a price she had to pay for surviving a motion of no confidence as party leader in 2018, in December 2018. After dreadful local uh, and European election results in 2019, her resignation was brought forward. So a party gets restless when they have serious disagreements on policy. A party gets restless when they feel the leader is, is, is leading them to defeat in local elections and perhaps then subsequent general elections. The Tory party remains divided over the size of government with neoliberals or the new right fearing increases in spending and likely tax increases. And One Nation Tories in the so-called red wall seats, those seats that the Tories won from Labour in 2019 that were traditionally Labour supporting, um, calling for public investment. So you've got this, this divide in the, Tory, in the Tory party between those who feel the need to so-called level up, those who want public investment in specific areas of the North, um, and those who, who feel uh, that 
um, public spending is a problem. This divide was on full display over rises in national insurance to pay for the NHS backlog uh, and social care in 2022. Now, Liz Truss has come into office without a firm level of support from her backbenchers, most backed Rishi Sunak in the leadership campaign to succeed Boris Johnson. Her subsequent victory in that contest after a vote by Tory party members was also less than emphatic. Prime ministers who come into office midway through a parliament often lack legitimacy and therefore their party feels uh, more able to rebel against them. So even while big parliamentary majorities might be the norm under first past the post, party unity uh, is seldom the norm um, and that often is temporary and often fluctuates depending on the policy, depending uh, on the likability of a prime minister. And that brings me to uh, my fifth and final source of prime ministerial power that we're going to look at. And that is the prime minister's personal qualities, which may, may bolster their power and their ability to dominate. So Britain's politics has become more candidate centred. Often people vote according to whether they like the leader or not. Hence why Jeremy Corbyn is not prime minister, because his approval ratings were so low in the 2019 general election. Tony Blair's image was used by the Labour Party in 1997 and 2001 to promote its manifestos. His face was on the cover of their manifesto, but not in 2005 uh, when he was less popular following Iraq. The Conservatives as a group were far less popular in the polls than David Cameron in 2010. Um, and um, they used his personal appeal to win votes. And in some by-elections, they even renamed the party David Cameron's Conservatives. The same was true again in 2015. Prior to calling the 2017 election, Theresa May gave, gave off an air of authority and gravitas, especially in contrast to opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn. Boris Johnson seemed at home taking part in publicity stunts, driving a JCB through a gridlocked parliament sign uh, in 2019 general election to signify that he was going to um, get Brexit done. His apparent dishonesty seemed priced in to voters' attitudes, who liked the fact that he seemed a bit different from ordinary voters. Not necessarily someone you could trust, but someone you could like. However, some prime ministers lack the capacity or personal qualities needed for dominance. John Major was seen as dull, Thatcher as bloody-minded. Brown seemed incapable of presenting a clear vision. His failure to call an election in 2007 led to charges that he was a ditherer. Cameron was seen as lacking in gravitas on the international stage. Obama was apparently not impressed when he first met him and recently criticised him for, from becoming distracted after the bombing of Libya. Theresa May was seen as cold and aloof. So that gravitas that she initially uh, seemed to have uh, to get credit for that led her uh, to call an election um, didn't transpire into someone who was good at campaigning uh, and also someone who was not necessarily willing to listen to many voices outside the inner circle of her advisers um, that were with her when she was Home Secretary and she took uh, into number 10. She also appeared to lack empathy when she did not meet residents of Grenfell Tower 
after the building caught fire in June 2017. The image of her as a so-called Maybot continued to linger. Johnson's image as a rule breaker that seemed quite charming in 2019 um, and quite fun cost him dearly in 2021 as evidenced as evidence emerged of lockdown parties at number 10 which he attended by March 2022 Johnson's approval ratings were far lower than they were than during the pandemic and a quick word on Liz Truss she does seem to me an incredibly awkward figure with poor communication skills um, and I think it's interesting in the early days of a premiership uh, when the Queen died and there was the Queen's funeral that the comments about her were that she seemed awkward uh, when she was meeting the new king, when she was uh, delivering um, uh, a, a short um, uh, statement um, outside number 10 after the Queen died, but also subsequently uh, with the unfolding of her economic plans and um, the, the, the silence from number 10. She hasn't made that many statements in public. And I think that points towards someone who is really uncomfortable in the glare uh, of publicity. That is going to be a huge problem for her going forward. After the break, we'll wrap this all up. Let's think about the trends then. The trend between 1945 and 2010 was perhaps towards increasing prime ministerial power. So Rose spoke of how prime ministerial power increased over time during that period. There were so-called old school prime ministers, Churchill, Attlee, traditional prime ministers, Wilson, Heath, and new style prime ministers, Blair, Thatcher, and maybe Cameron. So the new style prime ministers courted the media. Um, they spent less time in the Commons. They held fewer cabinet meetings and took advice more from advisers than cabinet members themselves. Um, there were increased use of, especially under the Blair government, of bilaterals, the one-on-one -on -one meetings with ministers to decide policy rather than relying on the cabinet as a whole. Um, and he also referred to cafetiere theory. This is the idea that policy is plunged from above. So uh, if you like your coffee, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but each prime minister, according to Hennessy, is actually different. So it's more complex than that. It's not the trend is not just uh, a straight line towards more prime ministerial power. According to Hennessy, um, the line is a, a little more blurred and, and varies from prime minister to prime minister. So what Hennessy, Hennessy speaks about are weather makers, those prime ministers who change the country's direction. So Thatcher privatised industry, that's a change in, in uh, the, the country's economic direction. You have nation shifters, those who change the way um, government operates. I think Blair with devolution is one of those. Uh, Johnson with Brexit, arguably. Um, then you have seasoned copers, those who attempt to balance all the divides in government, people who get by and do it fairly effectively, Callaghan, Cameron, um, try to appease the different factions in the parties. You also have those that Hennessy describes as promise unfulfilled. Uh, people like Wilson who came into office in 1964 with a great deal of fanfare, and perhaps didn't achieve as much as he wanted to. And then you have those who appear overwhelmed, uh, John Major, maybe Gordon Brown towards the end of his time. Um, now, the issue with this theory that Hennessy puts forward is that I think 
prime ministers change categories throughout their tenure. Liz Truss appears to me, at least, overwhelmed by the reaction of the international money markets to her plan to slash taxes. Yet, go forward maybe a year from now, maybe six months uh, before some of you take your A-levels. Let's say it's spring 2023. Maybe her plan, if it gets through Parliament, if it stays intact, leads to some short-term economic growth. And if it does that, she will appear much more of a weathermaker rather than someone who seems to me overwhelmed. So overall, prime ministerial power changes over time and depends on a number of factors. So first of all, events. The failure to find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq weakened Blair. Brexit consumed Theresa May, perhaps allowing for less time to spend on her preference to focus on the so-called burning injustices uh, that Britain had. The delay in entering into lockdowns and the failure to sack senior advisor Dominic Cummings over breaking lockdown rules arguably affected Johnson's standing. Yet the quick rollout of the COVID vaccine may have helped him and then the subsequent uh, allegations around Partygate, or revelations I should say over Partygate, uh, made his premiership terminally ill. Other members of cabinet can affect power. Major was constrained by Eurosceptics, Blair by Brown, Cameron was forced to replace the educational maintenance allowance with a slimmed down version because several Liberal Democrats in Cabinet were unhappy about it being scrapped. Theresa May had a good relationship initially with Chancellor Philip Hammond until the two appear to have clashed over rises to national insurance contributions. This issue seems to be a a divide in the Tory party that keeps coming back to bite it. Theresa May also refused to say whether Hammond would remain in post after the 2017 election, but the poor showing in that election meant that she had little choice but to keep him. The size of majority, as I've mentioned before, is all important. Major barely enjoyed one. Thatcher enjoyed large ones. Cameron had a very slim majority, which May scuppered by calling a snap election. Johnson and now Truss have commanding ones, yet neither Truss or Johnson enjoyed a unified party, which somewhat scuppers the benefit of that huge majority. I think the length of service could be a problem too. I think people get bored of prime ministers. People got bored of Blair. Thatcher's popularity also diminished over time. And then you have economic factors. Blair had money to spend. Black Wednesday damaged major. Brown had little room uh, for tax cuts to ease the effects of the credit crunch. Yet a lack of money can also provide opportunities. Cameron used the budget deficit to squeeze through right-wing welfare reforms. The cost of living crisis and the subsequent negative responses to Truss's tax-cutting fiscal event in September 22 has seriously damaged Truss's premiership before it has even begun, with the, MR, with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, warning over Britain's economic directions. And I think all of those things have made it difficult to see how Truss will be able to dominate the political system. And several prime ministers in recent years have failed to dominate the political system. The last really dominant prime minister was Tony Blair. And even he probably dominated for, what, five or six years before the Iraq war damaged his standing. So dominance is fleeting and peril is always just in the rear view mirror. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Do give others a listen. Do subscribe if you're finding this useful. And please tell others about the show. Um, Leave us a lovely review. If you didn't like the show, don't. Um, And also um, look out for my revision book, um, The 
the way on how that sorry the way on how um, how to buy it how to link to it is in the show notes until the next time folks take care eat lots of Toblerone bye